The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Sometimes in discussion with our Protestant brothers and sisters, or sometimes with Catholics themselves, questions will arise that seem to challenge the reality of our faith, the expression of our faith. The implication, of course, is that, that we're wrong and we've missed the mark uh, and we need to get in line with what actually ought to have been from the beginning. Questions arise such as, why do we go to confession to a priest? Can't we just go straight to Jesus? What are these things about indulgences? Is that the way for Catholics to buy their way into heaven? What does it matter to have a pope? Isn't Jesus enough for us? Why do we have a priesthood? Shouldn't we all be brothers and sisters in Christ? And why do you call priest father? Why do you have statues and rosaries and stained glass and stations of the cross and all of these things? Aren't we supposed to be people of the Spirit? A lot of these questions arise and are put to us as Catholics. Admittedly, very often... We don't really have a straight response. It can be a challenge to us. And you can kind of seem, whenever it's put to us, to say, where are these things in the Bible? Sometimes the response is, uh, it's what we do. It's what we are as Catholics. You know, just just don't question it, right? (laughs) But the reality is that all of these things do have scriptural roots. It's not as if the church kind of made it up over the years or we thought it might be a good idea. That all of these things indeed have roots in sacred scripture. But they're usually not in the New Testament. They're in the Old. And this is why it's important for us as Christians to know not just the New Testament things that Jesus said or that Paul said, but also the writings of the ancients. There's been, thankfully, a wonderful kind of renewal in this appreciation of our Jewish roots in recent decades. Dr. Scott Hahn, being a wonderful scripture scholar, uh, has frequently kind of opened up uh, this treasure trove for us, uh, the reality of the Old Testament things pointing forwards to what Christ would do. Dr. Brant Petrie in our own state 
another wonderful uh, scripture scholar who, with, uh, along with other, with other scripture scholars, has a, uh, an unofficial or official, I don't know, um, continuation of books coming out that begin with the title, The Jewish Roots of. There's the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, the Jewish Roots of the Mass, the Jewish Roots of Mary, the Jewish Roots of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this uh, recent, uh, the finding of, of the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scripture documents um, in the middle part of the 20th century. And so there's this reality that, indeed, these are not things that the church made up. They come from somewhere. And Jesus didn't just make them up himself. They have Old Testament roots. Jesus was prophesied. They were talking about the coming of the Christ for a, for a millennium and more before he actually came. They knew signs and wonders that would be worked. They knew where he would come from. They knew so many things about the Christ because they were preparing. God doesn't just do new things entirely without giving us an advance warning, typically, because he knows we need the help. <laughs> He knows we can't always follow along very easily because sometimes spiritual things, the mind of God, is beyond our mind. And so he allows us gradually to build up to certain things. One of those things is the keys. Today in our first reading, we heard about Shebna, who is, uh, who is shamed, and, and uh, Elkiah comes to be able to take his place. Shebna originally was the one who had the keys of the house of David. And this is a literal thing, but also a spiritual thing. Some fascinating things about it, whenever you, whenever you read through the first reading, is one finds that Shebna has a special robe that he wears that distinguishes him. Additionally, he has a special sash that is given to him, a sign of his authority. That he has keys, that he literally opens and closes things. This was part of the reality that, that he was entrusted with essentially opening and closing the gates for the people of God, whether they could come in or not. This was a, a real reality that if someone had, had renounced the faith or someone had, had committed grave sin, that they might, be set out, they might be set outside the temple for a time not to be able to enter, not to be able to come into the house of David, to be able to come before the king. So it was a literal authority that Shebna and then eventually Alkiah possessed. This was not the sort of being class monitor where you take names on who spoke during the time the teacher was out so the teacher can come back and do something about it. It's not the sort of thing where you, when you leave the house, you leave the oldest child in charge to take care of the little ones. You would be, I think, rather surprised if you came back to the house and your child spoke with authority and said, I've been talking with my little brother, and we've decided he, desire, he deserves a $15 a week raise on his allowance. Also, we're repainting the living room, and we're going to get new furniture. You would look at them and go, I think not. Thanks for your opinion, right? You wouldn't go, you've spoken, let's go, you know? It's, this is not the sort of thing that's taking place here. It's not as if Shebna is just, you know, class monitor or the oldest one in charge who's uh, lacking any authority. He has authority. When he opens, it's opened. When it's closed, when he closes, it is closed. 
He has the authority of David because he is the second in line to the king. When he speaks, in a sense, David speaks. It's an important thing to recognize. When he speaks, David speaks. When he acts with authority given to him by David, it is David who acts through him. It's in the light of that that we can begin to understand, more importantly, the conversation that Jesus has with Peter today. Jesus, in the midst of this, of course, asking, who do people say that I am? Kind of seeing what, they're, what the crowds are saying. Do they understand who he is, really? He's trying to see, is the message getting out or not? And then you ask the apostles, and it's Simon Peter who speaks. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to this, Jesus praises the Father for the knowledge given to Peter. And then he says, Peter, upon you I will build my church. The gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, if it were not for the keys to the house of David, giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven would be rather strange sounding. Peter himself probably would have inquired, Lord, what does that mean? Because very often in the parables, Jesus says something, he describes a parable, and then they come back and and they go, yeah, we didn't get that. What does that mean? Tell us again, explain that to us. But Peter never asked the question, what does it mean that you gave me the keys of the kingdom of heaven? He never asked the question. He knows. He knows that just as David had a number two to whom was entrusted power and authority to act in the person of David, Jesus gives Peter the keys, not just to a heavenly place, but spiritually to the earthly, not just the earthly place like David, but to the heavenly one, to heaven itself, in fact. Later on, after the resurrection, our blessed Lord breathes upon the disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. It sounds strikingly similar to whatever he opens is open, and whatever he closes is closed. Again, Jesus doesn't just say things out of nowhere. There's always a purpose. There's always something deeper that is taking place that Jesus is working in. So Jesus comes as the new David. David was, a seen, was seen as a, a sort of savior figure. He was the one who strikingly was both priest and king. Usually those titles were separate. But in David, they became the same. And who is it that they pointed to? The one high priest, Jesus Christ, who is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. And it's that king of kings who gave to his number two keys. Authority. He gives Peter authority. To be able to act in his name. And it has power. It changes things. And this is why we can have confession and indulgences and the priesthood and the sacramentals. Indeed the papacy itself. Because Christ wills it. Not because we do. These are not things that the church decided. Wouldn't it be a great idea if. And then insert Catholic practice. No. It was the understanding that Christ has given the church the authority. First, he wanted to build a church. 
Sometimes people say, Jesus didn't come to build a church. He said, clearly, I came to build a church, and it's on you, Peter. And above and beyond that, that church has authority, heavenly authority, binding authority. Why do we go to a priest for confession? Because Jesus wants us to. Because why would Jesus say, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained, if he didn't want people to go to those men to receive forgiveness? Christ wills it. What's the purpose of indulgences? An indulgence is not common, I guess contrary to popular belief and popular understanding in history. It was, it was thought that people would buying their way into heaven. This is not the reality. But it's the simple fact of the exercise of the authority, exercise of the keys that Peter has. If Peter can open and Peter can close, Peter can say, if you offer these certain spiritual practices, you will benefit from it spiritually. That's what an indulgence is. If you spend this much time before the Blessed Sacrament, you will gain God's grace. If you do this much time, you know, if, you, if you pray the rosary, you will gain this grace. If you spend time praying with the scriptures, you will gain this grace. If you spend time praying these prayers, doing service to the poor, offering various things in ministry in the church, you will gain grace because Peter has the authority to give it. This is what the indulgences do. They allow us grace. Why is it that we have a priesthood? Fascinatingly, the one entrusted with the keys has a special robe. Might look familiar. He had a special sash. And what is it the priest on as a sign of their authority? A special sash, a stole. They're even called fathers. Alkiah was called father of all Jerusalem and of the people of Judah. It's not because he was the biological father of all of this nation. It's that he had spiritual power. He had spiritual authority to give life. And so we continue to call the Holy Father, the Pope, Holy Father. Because, not because he is our biological father, but because he is our spiritual father who comes to bring us spiritual life. And he passes that authority on down, recognizing that Peter, the Pope, can't be everywhere always. He entrusts a portion of his authority to the other bishops that are around him. And they entrust a portion of their authority to the priests of the church. Such that priests have a thing called faculties. They are authorities given to us. I preach to you today because Bishop Duca has given me the authority to preach. And if you're paying attention to the news, there's a bishop over, over in the West um, who's telling his priests that they need, to, they need to cut their homilies to five minutes or less. Or they won't be able to preach. I'd, I'd have to just quit the first weekend. Right. But he can do that. He can say, if you don't do these things, you can't preach publicly. You don't have the authority to preach because I take it from you. Just like it's taken from, from Shebna. The priest is a priest, but he acts only because the authority has been given to him from someone higher. The bishop has it ultimately because of Christ, the priest has it ultimately because of the bishop. These are wonderful gifts to us. They are not on accident. They are not the will of the church just being manifest. They are not things that just came out of nowhere. They have deep, deep roots. Wonderful gifts for us, the church.
Indeed, that's why we can write and say, along with St. Paul, Oh, indeed, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. Because who among us would have thought to give so generously in so many ways to the church, the body of Christ? And who would have asked to have the authority of Jesus Christ present in the church in a person, the Pope, Peter, that Christ might continue to act today, to bind and to loose, to cast out, to set free. So as we come and offer this Holy Mass, this is indeed an opportunity for us to lift up our hearts in joy and in rejoicing to the Lord, who in his love and mercy for us has given us a spiritual father, has given us one who has the authority to speak in the name of Jesus, to speak his mercy and to bring us peace.